This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. First, the title. Should it be First Epistle of Peter, as you have it in the NASB, and also in the New King James? Or should it be the First General Epistle of Peter? Or should it be simply First Peter? Well, I think it would be wise to say it is always easy to add a noun or an adjective such as the first Peter epistle of Peter or the first general epistle of Peter. You can always add, add, add. And I believe that the shorter title, the better. Peter is writing an epistle to Christians who are scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. In other words, what we're talking about is the northern part of Asia Minor. Asia on the west coast, Bithynia here, Pontus, Galatia here in the center, Cappadocia in the east. Interesting that Peter is writing an epistle, a general epistle, to an area that covers most of Asia Minor. I'll have more to say about that in a moment. The external evidence about A.D. 95, Clement of Rome wrote a letter, First Clement, to the church in Corinth. In it, he provides parallels to 1 Peter. The first example in Clement's epistle is the greeting, which is remarkably, remarkably similar to that of Peter's letter. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. He says to God's elect who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by His blood grace and peace be yours in abundance. First Clement writes to those who are called and sanctified by the will of God through our Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace from God be multiplied. And if I'm not mistaken, Sunday, uh, we need you again. Would you mind reading the last line of verse 2 in 1 Peter 1? May grace and peace be yours in And oh, it still doesn't help us. Is there any other translation besides the NIV or the NASB? Yes, sir. The NASB in the margin says be multiplied. Ah, thank you. Be multiplied. Now, if I say, 
I'm going to multiply miles on the highway. That makes sense, doesn't it? Instead of driving 10, I'm going to drive 100 miles. If I say I'm going to multiply books in my library, that makes sense, right? So we are talking about objects. Now tell me, how do you multiply grace and mercy and peace? Look at Jude. Found right after John, third John, you have Jude. And you read mercy, peace, and love. And it should really read be multiplied to you. The NIV has be yours in abundance. Now, be multiplied. How do you multiply mercy? By being merciful to your fellow man. Here's the apocryphal story of Napoleon. 1795. Napoleon put a sentry on watch during the night. The man fell asleep. Called into his office. Napoleon said, Soldier, if it is going to happen again, you'll be shot. And lo and behold, a week later, the soldier fell asleep again. Napoleon said, you will be executed. Soldier's mother rushed, rushed to Napoleon and said, Sir, have mercy. Is my son. And Napoleon said, he doesn't deserve mercy. And the mother said, Sir, mercy is never deserved. Right on. We can go to God and say, I deserve when it comes to mercy. And God is saying to you, be merciful to your fellow man. And when you do so, you follow my example and from mercy, when you're able to look one another in the eye again, you have peace as a result. And when there is peace and harmony, then there is also the outflow of love for one another. That's what Peter is saying too. Grace and peace. Jude says, mercy, peace and and love. Fine. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Now back to <clears throat> Clement of Rome. Clement of Rome says, Grace and peace from God Almighty be multiplied to you through Jesus Christ. Obviously, the same as you find in First Peter chapter 1. 
And then there is more. Clement writes, Let us fix our gaze on the blood of Christ and let us know that it is precious to his Father. Now look at 1 verse 19 in 1 Peter. 1 verse 19. And I read, But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And third, Clement's vocabulary features a number of words that occur only in Peter's epistles. In the first half of the second century, Polycarp of Smyrna, on the west coast of Asia Minor, composed a letter to the church in Philippi. And this letter has a number of quotations from 1 Peter. For example, quote, Jesus Christ in whom, though you did not see him, you believed in unspeakable and glorified joy. Will you please look at 1 Peter 1, verse 8. 1, 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Let me read. Polycarp again, Jesus Christ in whom, though you did not see him, you believed in unspeakable and glorified joy. Toward the end of the second century, about the year 185, Irenaeus not only quotes 1 Peter 1 verse 8, but he also introduces the quotation with the words, and Peter says in his epistle, in the next century, Clement of Alexandria and Tertullian quote Peter's epistle and refer to the apostle by name. Then church historian Eusebius notes that Papias, P-A-P-I-I-S, I-A-S, who was bishop in Asia Minor about the year 125, quote, used quotations from the the epistle of John, and likewise also from that of Peter. In short, the evidence by way of external sources is solid. Peter wrote first Peter. Now the internal evidence. There's plenty. First of all, the greeting. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, let's stop for just a moment and talk about apostle. All you Greek scholars, of course, know that apostle comes from the word apostelline. Here it is. Okay. Apostelline. Transliterated, apo, and then stelline. Good. To send away. So an apostle is sent away. He is sent abroad. But there's more to that word apostle. He is sent abroad with a message. And in Hebrew, Aramaic, you have Shaliach, transliterated, 
A shaliach is an ambassador who is sent out with the authority of his master, his sender. I'd like to give you a little incident that happened in in 1969. President Richard Nixon assumed the office of the presidency and he appointed an ambassador to India. We'll call him Mr. White. Mr. White traveled, by plane obviously, to India and arrived at the airport of New Delhi. And when he arrived, he was surrounded by newspaper and TV reporters and they said, Mr. White, what is your opinion of the war in Vietnam? And Mr. White says, I couldn't care less what they say in Washington, D.C., but let me tell you what I think about that war in Vietnam. And that news was sent to Washington, D.C. in less than a minute. And back to Washington, D.C. to New Delhi, Mr. White reported at the White House, Washington, D.C., immediately. When Mr. White arrived at Andrew Air Force Base, he was only Mr. White, but without a title and without a job. Now the application. If you are a preacher, you are sent by the Lord Jesus Christ Apostelline, sent to bring the word of the Lord. And now, when you bring your own opinions, a Saturday afternoon evening special, Reader's Digest stories, or may I put it this way, a skyscraper sermon, one story upon another. <laughs> The Lord Jesus Christ does not say, you have been lazy. He say, out. I want you men to be faithful ambassadors of the Lord Jesus, <laughs> proclaiming his word. Be an apostle. Okay, I've spoken enough on that subject. Let me move on. Peter is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter also says that he is an eyewitness. Look at chapter 5, will you? Chapter 5, verse 1. To the elders among you I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's suffering, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. In other words, I was there. I am talking to you as an eyewitness. And last, Peter mentions Silas and Mark. Look at verse 12 of chapter 5. With the help of Silas or Silvanus, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is a true grace of God. Stand firm. And then continuing, She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings. 
And so does my son, Mark. Sylvanus, well known. Look up his name in Acts chapter 15. Look up his name. Paul and Silas in chapter 16 in prison in Philippi. And on and on. And Mark, not to be forgotten, also mentioned in the book of Acts. And there is another source. Peter's preaching. Roughly speaking, the first part of Acts is all about Peter. The second part of Acts is all about Paul. Peter speaks in chapter 1, choosing a successor to Judas Iscariot. Peter speaks in chapter 2, Pentecost sermon. Peter speaks in chapter 3, when he addresses the crowd after healing the man who was lame. Peter speaks in chapter 4 before the Sanhedrin. Peter speaks again in chapter 5, once more before the Sanhedrin. Must I go on? Peter is always speaking. We read Peter's sermons and his epistle. And what we find is a striking resemblance. E.G. Selvin, a commentator, British commentator, who wrote a commentary in 1946 on the epistle, observes, quote, Few would suggest that the parallels of thought and phrase between the speeches and First Peter are based upon Luke's reading of the epistle. End of quote. What I have to say is that the evidence, both external and internal, support the apostolic authorship of First Peter. Now, objections. Is Peter writing? Or is it someone who has adopted the name Peter? A pseudonym, in other words. Peter mentions suffering in chapters 2 and 3 and 4 and even in chapter 5. Now, does this refer to Nero? Or could it be that he is referring to the sufferings during the reign of Domitian or even Trajan? Now, when you say that, Domitian ruled from the year 81 to 96. And if you say during that time Peter was written then you have to say, Peter himself didn't write it. But can you be so sure that Peter is not talking about the times of Nero? <clears throat> Nero became emperor in the year 54, at the age of 17. He was a redhead. Barbarossa, he was called. And his mother put him on the throne. And Nero had no interest at all in being emperor. You probably saw Ben-Hur. If not, take time out someday. 
They have a picture of Nero. Couldn't care less. And then burning the city of Rome in the year 64, and in 68 he commits suicide. That's the end of Nero. But he had a reign of terror at least for four, maybe five years. And the Christians suffered. It is no wonder that Peter writes in chapter 4, verse 12, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. Emperor worship, oppression and persecution, Caesar is Lord, not Jesus is Lord, persecution on every hand during the 60s. In other words, I am not at all taken by the suggestion that we should look at Domitian. We know little about the persecution during the reign of Domitian. We may say it was probably in Rome and also in the western part of Asia Minor. And that's all we can say. A third objection pertains to the respective mission fields of Peter and Paul. Critics argue that Peter could not have written a letter to churches which Paul had founded. Look at these names, will you? You have Asia, you have Galatia, and then you have Bithynia, Troy, or Troas, right there at that B. Paul founded these churches. And do you mean to say that Peter now is writing letters to these churches? Well, yes. Is there a law against writing a letter? And the answer, of course not. Paul began the churches. Peter continues. And Peter does also the work along the edge of the Black Sea. You have Pontus. And you have... Galatia, the northern part of Galatia. Paul was in the southern part of Galatia. Well, then there is another objection that concerns style. Here is a German New Testament theologian by the name of Werner Georg Kümmel. This is what he writes. Listen, the language of 1 Peter is an impeccable Greek which uses numerous rhetorical devices, word order, parallel clauses, series of similar compounds, and so on. And the numerous Old Testament quotations and allusions stem without exception from the Septuagint. Both are inconceivable for the Galilean Peter. I, the German scholar... I know. Really? Doesn't Peter say that he was helped in this writing by Silas or Silvanus? And Silas Silvanus was a Roman citizen. Greek was his native tongue. He was called a prophet. Look it up in Acts chapter 15. He was well educated 
and now helping Peter. And maybe I'm putting it on a bit thick, but don't you think that he would say, Peter, we don't say it that way. I know what you mean, but this is how you say it. That's what you find in First Peter. It's good Greek. Thanks to Sylvanus. Well, didn't Paul use, and I use a big word now, amanuensis? And the answer is yes. <laughs> Will you please look, look at Romans chapter 16? This may be an eye-opener to you. If you're not familiar with it. Romans 16, verse 22. Read it with me, will you? I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. There it is. Tertius. By the way, <laughs> these Romans really had <clears throat> interesting names. Really original. Yeah, Primus, first. Secundus, second. Tertius, the third. Quatus, the fourth. <laughs> okay, <laughs> fine. But here's Tertius, writing down Romans. Now, he could have stopped Paul in 5 verse 12 and said, Paul, finish the sentence, will you? But he continued writing it down. Good. Now, the composition. One last objection to Petrine authorship concerns the composition of the epistle. And this is so picky. Look, will you turn with me to chapter 4 verse to 11, verse 11. And I read the last line. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. And now the next verse, 12. Dear friends. Now, see, says the critic, see, the first Four chapters up to verse 11 through verse 11, that's epistle number 1. And now here we have epistle number 2, verse 12 of chapter 4 through the end. See it? <coughs> Come now. <coughs> we have a few things to say to you. Because... What do you do with chapter 2, verse 11? Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Isn't that the beginning of a new letter? See, unless you read... This is now my second epistle. You have no reason to open your mouth. Now, obviously, I'm talking about Second Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Second Peter 3, 1. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. And obviously, there is a first epistle. Can't you see? Okay, we'll talk about the source. If I would mention 
Peter and Paul and say, who is the theologian? Well, then Paul, of course, wins out. Paul wrote 13 epistles. Peter wrote only two and short ones at that. Well, Paul calls himself, as we noted yesterday, the least of the apostles. Literally, the leaster of the apostles. Peter, however, is also a theologian. His entire epistle, 1 Peter, focuses attention on God. Ralph Martin, who used to teach at Fuller Seminary and returned to his native country, England, is now teaching at the University of Leeds. He wrote this, listen, quote, Probably no document in the New Testament is so theological as First Peter, if theo- theological is taken in the strict sense of teaching about God. There it is. It is a theological epistle. Well, look for just a moment, will you, at verse 2 in 1 Peter 1. 2 and 3. I begin, really, with verse 1. He says, To God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling by blood. The Trinity. Read verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Theology. And on and on it goes throughout the five chapters. Peter defines his doctrine of Christ by disclosing Christ's divinity, humanity, and sinlessness. And furthermore, he talks about Christ's resurrection and his ascension. Resurrection and ascension. Now, did Paul depend at all upon Peter? Did Peter depend upon Paul? Well, (laughs) hold on a moment now. When did Paul write most of his epistles? Well, he started in the year 50, probably began with Galatians, followed it up by First and Second Thessalonians, and then he wrote First Corinthians, followed by Second Corinthians. Then he continued and he wrote Romans. Then in imprisonment in Rome, he wrote Colossians and Philemon. And then he wrote Ephesians 
And after that he wrote Philippians. Now you're up to ten epistles. And I'm up to the year 63, 62. And then he wrote First Timothy and Titus, the year 63. We do not know exactly when Paul was beheaded. Probably in the year 67. That's anybody's guess. And then he wrote Second Timothy, his last epistle. Now, when did Peter write his? Probably in the early part of the year 64. So it would be more natural to say that Peter depended on Paul, not the other way around. Okay? Now, was Peter a bit upset? Because, after all, Paul told him off. Well, he puts it differently, I know. I put it so bluntly. But, here it is. In Galatians chapter 2. Verse 11. Read. Galatians 2, 11. When Peter came to Antioch in Syria, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. In other words, I told him off. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived... He began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Hypocrite! Can't you hear Paul thundering at Peter? And Barnabas got a few licks too. Well, did Peter say, enough is enough, Paul? I'm hurt. Yes? No, not at all. Will you go with me to Second Peter chapter 3? Second Peter chapter 3. I'm reading verse 15. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation just as our dear brother Paul. Notice how he puts it. Our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. And then he says, (laughs) His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, as if Peter is so clear, which ignorant and unstable people, people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. So Paul's epistles, in Peter's opinion, are scripture. See it? And what about Paul? Did he look, did he look down upon Peter? Not at all. Read First Corinthians, will you? And he mentions Peter's name over, again, over and over again. It's a good relationship. Ephesians 1 verse 21 is paralleled in 1 Peter 3.22 and 5 verses 22 to 24. Now, 1 Peter 3 verses 1 through 6 
And then from Romans, you have 4, verse 24. Oh, and there are many others. All you have to do is take a reference Bible and the column in the center of the page and look and you can find that Peter goes right to the sources of Paul's epistles. Enough. Now, dependence on James. We talked about James before the break. Now, just listen. You looked it up the other time. James 4, verse 6 and 7 and 10. Quote, Scripture says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will lift you up. Resist the devil and He will flee from you. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 and 6 and 8 read as follows. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that He may lift you up in due time. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Peter has added, has embellished the words of James. One other remark. Peter borrows words from Jesus. And where do we find the words of Jesus? This particular text is found in John 20, verse 29. Now, I'm not saying that John's gospel was in print or was circulating at that time. No. John wrote in the year 90, but Jesus spoke in the year 30. And it is those words of Jesus that Peter heard that he now records. Okay, John records them first of all. Here it is. John 20 verse 29. Because you have seen me you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Spoken to Thomas. Remember? Thomas, second Sunday evening, finally coming. Oh yes, Lord, I can now put my hand, my finger on the marks. Yes, yes. Peter writes, 1 Peter 1.8 Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And even though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Okay, let's look at theology in the epistle of Peter. We first have the doctrine of God, then the doctrine of Christ, then that of the Holy Spirit, Number four, the church. Number five, eschatology. So we're going to look first at the doctrine of God. Already I referred to the first couple of verses where God the Father elects His people according to foreknowledge. Jesus Christ shed His blood for them and the Holy Spirit sanctifies them. Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. So the Three persons of the Trinity take part in redeeming the sinner. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
in his epistle, Peter discloses God's sovereignty. God ordains. One ver- verse two. God creates. Four verse nineteen. Let me read that text for you. Four nineteen. He says, So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful Creator and continue to do good. God is a Creator. I continue. God governs by extending His will to the believer's life. God speaks about the believer's conduct, his suffering, and his life in general. And I can mention text upon text, 2 verse 15, 3 verse 17, 4 verse 19, on and on. God's hand is everywhere Supporting, supplying, upholding the believer. Then, Peter talks about God's holiness, goodness, faithfulness, grace. Well, let's talk about the holiness for just a moment. In chapter 1, verse 15, read with me, one fifteen. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. There's a holiness of God. And that is actually a quote from Leviticus 11, verse 44 and 45. Leviticus 11. 44, 45. Then he talks about the goodness of God. 2, verse 3. This is how he puts it. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. He notes God's faithfulness. 4 verse 19, just quoted a moment ago, we read that the believers are exhorted to commit themselves to their faithful Creator. And then you have a reference to God's electing grace, to God's gift of grace. Also, God is a Covenant-keeping God. We have 2 verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Well, what about the Gentiles? Yes, he has a word for the Gentiles too. And I refer you to 2 verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, 
Now you have received mercy. Which is really paralleling the words of Hosea 2 verse 23. God gives spiritual birth, new birth, 1 verse 3. We're born again, not of perishable seed, but of Im- imperishable seed, 1.23. In summary, the doctrine of God is central in Peter's epistle. Here's a quote by Francis Bear, B-E-A-R-E, British theologian. Clearly, the thought of this writer is not Christocentric, but theocentric. It begins from and returns constantly to the thought of God as creator, father, and judge. End of quote. The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.